All right, amen. Uh, again, uh, welcome to uh, Mercy Fellowship. Uh, if you're with us in person, uh, if you're with us online, I'm not sure that you're you're with us today. So uh, I had a bit of technical difficulties. So like, it's like you guys showed up to a live event that's not on the internet. I mean, so who knows what could happen here in the next uh, few minutes now that it's not being broadcast out. And so um, uh, what we're doing today doesn't, doesn't change, though. We gather together um, because we're saved by Jesus' work. We're changed by Jesus' grace, and we're living on Jesus' mission. That means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so we're continuing our series in 2 Corinthians called Enduring Courage and Weakness. And as we've talked about endurance, we've said that part of that's kind of making it through some mess to get to the other side of something that's actually good and glorious. And so as we begin, we're going to be in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians today, verses 1 through 13. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we have one for you uh, out on the table uh, out there in the foyer. Uh, But as we turn there, I want you to know that what we're going to do today is talk about shame. We're going to talk about suffering. We're going to talk about separation. And, and yes, we're going to find good news in these things, but we have to, to, to understand with starting with, we know shame. We know suffering. We experience separation. And we just kind of, kind of put that into a category of, well, the world's imperfect. And there's going to be difficulties. And, and so, so we don't like to talk about these things because we'd rather pretend that, that shame and suffering and separation don't impact us. That's what somebody else is going through. Oh man, it's so hard for them right now. We don't like to talk about it with ourselves. But the fact remains that that shame and suffering and separation have implications for how we see ourselves, how we understand God, and how we interact with each other. And so when we talk about shame, it's, it's that sense of when you can say in your soul, I know what I've done. Or, I know what's been done to me. And you just realize you're not perfect. And if you fail in any way, we experience guilt. And, and maybe, hey, there's times you're guilty. We're, we're guilty, right? We, we've all sinned. We're going to get there. Um, but, but sometimes it's that others have harmed you. Others have abused us. And so now we, we, we know that, that, that it's impacted our self-worth and our psyche. And so whether we believe it or not, we think we walk around with some sort of scarlet letter that, that outs us as someone who has sinned or has had someone sin against them. So then we wonder or we become concerned, is this what's going to define me? And then for, for suffering... It's that sentiment of, of, I know what I've dealt with or what I am dealing with. Sometimes it's past, sometimes it's, it's present, right? And, and so this is pain and difficulty in the world because of circumstances that are usually beyond our control, right? Sometimes we can wrap our head around that. We're like, well, it's, it's out of my control. Sometimes there's suffering we experience as a result of our own actions, because, because we've sinned or because we've, we, we, we've done something that we're, we're, ooh, I did this and it led to this consequence. And then sometimes we endure suffering just because we actually bear responsibility. 
We, we are responsible for ourselves. If you're, if you're married or, or you're a parent or you have a position of leadership in any way, shape, or form, you're responsible for other people. And so you endure suffering, but it's actually intentional because you're also bearing responsibility. And so what happens is that we crave flourishing, but because of suffering, we face failure. And so we ask ourselves or we're concerned, will this defeat me? And then with separation, it's that sentiment in our souls that says, I know, I know who's distant. I know who I used to be close to, but now there's a distance and I think I know why. And and when we have shame and we've experienced suffering, it leads to separation. And we have people who we thought were close friends of ours and they turn into foes. Or we thought that there was people who were just maybe, you know, kind of acquaintances, but instead they're opponents. Uh, And so um, we try to move on particularly when there's something difficult that's happened, but, but the grief still has to be processed. So we try to move on, but, but then we carry brokenness into a new relationship. Right? You know, your parents did a number on you, and now you're parenting. Congratulations. You're, you're, you're feeding the coffers of, of future therapists, right? We know this. Because we either bring this brokenness into new relationships, or we continue to walk in bitterness from what's happened to us in the past or a bad situation in the past. And that leads us to fear uh, of the future. And so it really uh, makes us beg this concern, will this separation ultimately leave me disconnected? And so these categories need to be included in in the concept of how we as Christians and how we as, as, as humans understand what the Bible talks about as sin, shame, Suffering, separation are all consequences of sin. Individually, we know that sin is, hey, sin is missing the mark. Sin is breaking God's law. We're now bent out of shape so we don't function the way we're supposed to. Corporately, we can look at sin and say, wait, there are systems and structures and cultures that are not for human flourishing, but actually uh, opposed to human flourishing. And they manifest themselves um, in social injustice and societal norms and and culture that that, that just um, makes our souls ache. And then even in creation, we, we see creation crying out in its brokenness that, yes, it is beautiful, but we also know it's broken. Because while we can enjoy the beauty of a sunrise over the mountains, we know that there's also disease. And while we can uh, enjoy uh, uh, you know, diving into water in the summertime, we also know that there's natural disasters. And the world just, just doesn't quite function. So that we think about sin in those aspects, but when we come to our lives, we usually think, well, okay, sin, if I'm going to deal with sin, we think about it a lot of times in a courtroom setting. Our culture, if you grew up, if you're my age, maybe a little bit older, um, and you grew up, you thought about right and wrong in terms of guilt or innocence. I mean, you couldn't make it through lunch at your grandparents' house without watching what? Matlock at noon, right? They wanted you to help set the VCR for it, right? Because you got to record those things. First trombone lick I learned when I learned the trombone was the theme song to Matlock. It was just ingrained in me so much. Okay. But, but with this, we, we think of that courtroom drama. 
Are you guilty or are you innocent? And then we, we talk about the cross and we realize that, that yes, the, the Bible uses language of guilt and innocence. Jesus took your guilt of sin, he bared it, and now you are innocent because of what he's done. That is called justification. And that is absolutely an essential and beautiful part of the gospel. But when we pick up this book, when we pick up the Bible, we got to realize that what was written in here was written for us, but it was also written to people in a culture, in a time, in a place, in context. And in the Middle East, in, 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 in most of the time the Bible was written, they weren't in courtroom dramas of guilt or innocence. It was societally thinking of honor or shame. And our culture has been making that shift over the last, I don't know, maybe five to ten years. Where we don't think about right and wrong, guilt and innocence. We think about favored, honor, shame, canceled, done. So this shift is happening. And yet God's word still speaks to it. So we don't have to fear a cultural shift between guilt and innocence and honor and shame. We just have to know how to engage the, the timeless truth of the gospel into the changing times that we live in. So we endure shame and we endure suffering and we endure separation. And that manifests itself in that concept of dishonor. And so today we need to learn how are we going to endure dishonor? Because we're all going to experience it in some way. We need a salvation outside of ourselves to cover our shame, to cleanse our souls, to help us endure suffering, and ultimately to change our relationships. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do this a long intro today, uh, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to start with verses 1 and 2 as we begin to answer shame and suffering and separation through three different sections of Scripture, starting with verses 1 and 2. Paul says this after all that we looked at last week in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, now we are working together with him. This is us with God. Then we appeal to you, therefore, to not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, quote, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you, unquote. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so what you see in these first two verses is an identity of honor. The gospel answer for the dishonor of shame that we experience because of sin is a new identity of honor that we get to embody. And so the gospel of Jesus has been given to us. He says, and, and, and earlier in 2 Corinthians, he says, it's a jar of clay, that's us, but it's a treasure that it's been put into. He says as well, that, hey, you, you used to be distant, but now you are an ambassador of the kingdom of God. He said, you used to be your old self. No, that old self's gone. Now you're your new self. And so God's making his appeal to us in this message of reconciliation between a perfect and just God and a broken and lost humanity that's marred and stained with sin. And so with this new identity, we are no longer dishonored enemies of God. But instead, we are honored envoys of grace to a world that's wallowing in its own shame. And so this doesn't drive us to pride. Okay, I don't, 
I'm not the shamed one anymore, right? No, it leads us to pursue humility because we're ambassadors, you said, who are partnering with Christ to call sinners to salvation. And so even when I say the word ambassador, it gives you that sense of like, hey, we're distant. We're out here. The kingdom of God's way over there. Like, like I'm the ambassador to, to Ouagadougou and Burkina Faso. Like you feel pretty, that's West Africa, by the way. Uh, you feel pretty like disconnected from America. And so like if, if, if mess really goes down, you're like, uh-oh, hope there's a helicopter to get me out quick. No, instead, we're ambassadors to a kingdom where our king has gone along with us. In, in Matthew 28, Jesus says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we are ambassadors of a kingdom where the king says, I'm going with you too. And we get to experience that and be empowered by that in the Holy Spirit. More on that later. But the, the bottom line at the beginning of verse 1 here, this working together, is that we get to partner closely with Jesus in the work he is doing to bring salvation to sinners who are, are dealing with shame. And then he goes on to say that, you know, hey, I, I just I want to appeal to you. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. So uh, vain means empty. Whereas we, in this new identity of honor, we are people who aren't empty. We're full of grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a theologian and pastor and minister um, in Nazi Germany in the 30s and the 40s, um, he talked about the concept of what he called cheap grace. And this is kind of what these verses are talking about in terms of, of experiencing the grace of God in vain. When he says cheap grace, he doesn't mean that like... Um, it doesn't cost you anything necessarily. What, what he means is that it's cheap like it's ineffective. Meaning, we have a concept of grace from God that says, hey, congratulations, you get to go to heaven when you die. Between now and then, nothing in your life is going to be different at all. And you're like, thanks, I'm excited for that, but the next 30, 40, 50 years, a little dicey. And he says, no, no, the grace of God secures your eternity but it also transforms your identity now. It actually it empowers you now. It changes who you are now. And so he says that God is rich in mercy. He's gracious to give us new life. And so if we are experiencing emptiness, it's because we're acting like the grace of God isn't something we've already received. Isn't something that we desire. Isn't something that we even need. So we keep living like we're old. We looked at that last week in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. It says that the old is past. And and so we act like God's done this amazing work in our life to secure our eternity. That's a miracle. And and yes, like look forward to eternity. But if the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't impacting your identity today, then then it's a bit empty. It's a bit vain. And so shame is what leaves us empty. The grace of God is what leads us to fullness. So we don't need to worry about being stained with sin. I mean, sin does stain, and and sin impacts. Like, the sins we've committed and the, the, the sins that have been done to us, it does mark us, but it doesn't define us because we looked at the verses last week that said we have a new identity in Christ. So that sin that you've done, the sin done to you, is no longer what defines you. What Christ has done for you is what defines you. And so there's a future hope that the grace of God covers our eternity. It's essential to our identity today, even as we feel a bit like exiles. 
and I say that because Paul's quoting these verses here. Um, it, verse 2 is really a quote from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. And if, if you have time later, I encourage you, go read through Isaiah 49, an awesome chapter of God promising to in the midst of exile that I, I hear you, people of God. I, I, I'm sending a suffering servant for you, people of God. I'm, I'm saving you now, people of God. You're going to have a future, people of God, so that you don't need to, to worry today. And, and I want to break this down for a second because, I mean, what is dishonor if not feeling like you're in exile, right? I mean, it has shame, right? You're no longer considered a favored nation. Knowing the story of the Bible, like God's people were brought out of slavery. They go through wilderness. They get to set up their own kingdom. And things look like they're going pretty well for for a couple generations. They're enjoying favored nation status, if you will. But then it descends. As... Faithful generations give way to faithless generations. And they experience exile at the hands of their enemies as other nations who, to be clear, also weren't righteous. But God raises them up and and God's people are are sent into exile. And to be clear, it's actually an earned exile. Because there's generations and generations and generations of faithlessness where God had sent prophets and, and priests and kings to, to continually call God's people. Okay, come on, come, come back to where honor is. Come back to where life is. And instead, stop shaming yourself by pursuing sin and, and, and false gods and idolatry. And then they're brought out and they experience shame because they're no longer a favored nation. They they're experience suffering because they're under the control of a hostile power. Not only are you no longer in your homeland, you're in a land uh, where, where you're held in derision. They might have been put into slavery. They were less than full citizens in most of the, of the empires they found themselves in. And then, of course, they're experiencing separation because they're far from home. They've been brought away from any sense of being grounded. Exile is one of the one of the ultimate dishonors. And in the midst of this suffering, e- even in the midst of the faithlessness in exile, God doesn't sit back and say, "Well, hope they find some way to be honorable again. Hope you guys kind of get your act together. Maybe I'll do something." No, you read Isaiah 48, and it's in the midst of their dishonor that God's people do cry out and say, when is enough going to be enough? What are we experiencing? God, this this shame, this separation, this suffering, and, and, and rightly, they turn to God for answers for it. And God says, I hear you. I'm listening. I've actually never forgotten you. I've actually never forsaken you. I've been here the whole time. And he says, I'm going to deliver you from your exile. He hears and responds. And it says he responds with a favorable time is what my translation says, but you can think about it as a time of favor. This is what the grace of God means. Not just that your sins are forgiven, but you are living and existing in a season of and in a time of God's favor. It means that God honors you because of what Christ has done on your behalf. You're not seen as dishonorable anymore. 
He listens to our sin. He listens to our shame. He hears us crying out. And he doesn't turn a deaf ear. And the reality is all of us have been exiled because of sin. And God hears your cries. And he's not waiting for you to finally get your act together and present yourself as honorable. No, God condescends. God descends. God dishonors himself coming in the personal work of Jesus Christ. In humility, in poverty, in a marginal place, in a marginal time. And God says, I'm going to meet you where you're at in your dishonor. I'm going to grab you by the hand and I'm going to carry you home. So we're now elect exiles on this journey. We're no longer defined by our shame. We've been delivered from dishonor. Now is the day of our salvation. And so um, where sin leads to shame and exile, we need deliverance now. We need to be brought home now, or at least at least know that home is going to happen. And so God answers, it says, with timely help. And so if you're in Christ now, like your day of salvation is not that day when you breathe your last and get to be home with Jesus. Yes, that's a final consummation of what salvation is going to look like. But if you're in Christ, you're saved today. So you don't have to be empty. You can be full because God is with you today. He's shaping and empowering your identity today. And so what that means is he's talking to this Corinthian church that in a sense their, their, their answer for shame is to live shamelessly. I don't mean like not processing their shame. I mean like, ah, whatever. You like read about the Corinthians and, and like I think the Corinthians are the ones who planned all of the Grammy uh, presentations this year. Okay? Don't Google them. Okay, just don't. Like, their answer for dealing with shame was, ah, there's no such thing as sin. Let's just keep living shamelessly. And instead, no, God says, no, no, I, I've, I've, I've owned your dishonor. I've owned your shame. And I've covered you with Jesus' work on the cross in your place, giving you a new identity of honor. That's how God answers how shame impacts us. All right, let's keep going. How do we deal with suffering and conflict? Verses 3 through 10 say this. There's going to be some listening here, guys, so, so bear with me. He says, we, this is talking about his ministry, put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, and the Holy Spirit, Genuine love, by truthful speech and by the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich as having nothing, yet possessing everything. So as we consider conflict and suffering, the answer of the gospel for the dishonor of suffering is through endurance, through empowerment, and through encouragement. 
And we'll see that in kind of three sections in this bigger section because being set free from shame does not mean that we're free from suffering. Does not mean that we're free from difficulty. New identity doesn't mean um, that we don't experience difficulty now. And so he talks about external calamities and internal challenges. And and when we face these, it seems like they have the potential to derail us on on our journey and they can unsettle our sense of identity. Especially that last part of the um, list when we get there, right? I mean, it gets back to our identity again. And how unsettling it can be when conflict and, and suffering happens. And so we just need to know that conflict is going to be part of our earthly experience. It's just going to be part of it. How we're going to navigate these conflicts matter because they can serve as obstacles, he says, or stumbling blocks to our faith. So the first thing he says is that the, the, the first way that we deal with suffering is through endurance. He uses the word endurance right there. In the face of suffering and challenging circumstances, what what I love about this is Paul is so realistic about the condition of our lives. He's like, yeah, it's going to be difficult, guys. So he's, he's extremely realistic, and he's also exceedingly hopeful. Right? Sometimes if you're one or the other, that's just difficult. Like, hey, I'm just a realist, guys. It's going to suck. End of sermon. Have a great rest of your day. Right? You know, or if you, or if you came in today and, and you're dealing with cancer, you're dealing with job loss, it feels like your house is crumbling around you, you're worried about society, and we're like, don't worry guys, it's going to be okay. End of sermon. No donuts today, but this was sweet too, right? Like, you need a comprehensive faith, and Paul has that. He's a complex person, just like us, making his way on his journey of life that includes sorrow and suffering, but also joy and praise. The Bible's realistic about our experiences. And even as he talks about suffering, there's, there's nine words he uses. And, and I can't hit every word in, in detail, but, but he even breaks those nine into kind of three groups. Paul's a great writer. He says afflictions, hardships, and calamities. He's talking about general suffering. Right? That's not specific. It's general. Anything that makes endurance in life difficult that brings us a sense of being overwhelmed or that our circumstances are hopeless, that there's not a path forward. And so he's recognizing that the world we are in is not always hospitable to our flourishing. And so there are just big parts of the world's story that are so far beyond our control that we're all enduring together. That's just more general, you know, not goodness. I was going to use worse words, but I don't know how many kids are in here today. Okay. And so ultimately, he's saying there's parts of the world that are just hostile to your joy. It's, it's general suffering. And then he says, beating, riots, and imprisonments. Okay, we just went from general to very, very specific. For Paul, he's endured all of these. Like, we, you look at it in, in Ephesus, I mean, there was like a, a massive riot because the economy was unsettled because of cultural changes that were happening as, as, as pagan people who were worshiping false gods started to lose their business because too many people were actually worshiping the God who created everything. Who was rioting? Not the Christians. No, we, we endure. Right? We, don't, we don't take up the sword. We have a Savior who was slain already for us. And we know that our victory is assured. And so, 
He gets very specific because there's, there's, there's things that even Paul, as a champion of the gospel, endured. And this is where we've talked about this over this past year, that, yeah, there's the general things that are going on, but, man, each one of us has individual and specific suffering that's, that's, it's a small story, it seems like, in the scale of the world, but it's significant to God. Your suffering matters to God. And so he says, even when these difficult things are happening, that they're unique to our life, our time, our place, that we're still going to endure. And then this last category, labor, sleepless nights, hunger. This is a response to just the responsibilities that Paul had. The responsibilities that we have in navigating this life when it'd be so easy to just find ways to check out. Instead, he says, not all suffering is because of, of the world being bad. Not all suffering is because we're, we're dealing with um, you know, something difficult or we're being harmed. Sometimes, like, we're just suffering because trying to make our way in the world is difficult. So when he says labor, he's talking about toil, hard work, that, that, like to produce anything of value is going to be hard. It's going to require endurance. Hard work is hard, and so it doesn't make it any easier. Um, uh, one of uh, uh, the athletes that uh, Matt Nickel works with on one of his other companies um, gets quoted as saying, uh, pressure is a privilege. And like, I mean, I, I had that on a t-shirt, and I like it. But it doesn't mean that the pressure is also not hard. There's not suffering involved. He talks about sleepless nights. He's talking about anxiety of the weight of what he's carrying. He talks about hunger, that, that there's just wanting more than what we have in life right now. Wanting to see more fruit in the lives of our kids. Wanting to see like, things different financially. Wanting to see more cultural flourishing. Like It's just that hunger that's there. All of that is a result not of, of necessarily sin, but just navigating a broken world with the responsibilities we have. And we talked about this at staff meeting this week, that we love that like calamities, like worldwide disasters, riots and beatings, and sleepless nights are all on the same list. Because he's saying all of that is suffering and needs to be in, endured. And so... However we're experiencing suffering, it's significant and it requires endurance. Um, early church father, John uh, Chrysostom, he was um, a, a, a Greek uh, guy uh, in the, a couple hundred years after Jesus um, uh, uh, rose and, and, and uh, ascended. And he says this about this section of scripture in this list. He says, any one of these things is intolerable, but taken together, think what kind of soul is needed to endure them. And that gets us to our, our, our last part of this section. Our souls on our own can't deal with this. They have to be empowered by something beyond ourselves because it's, it's exclusively on our power. We're not going to endure the dishonor of suffering. And so that's where we see that we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Right? This, this list transitions 
And it starts talking about enduring conflict through the Holy Spirit, giving us patience, love, purity, knowledge, like, like all truthful speech, like all of these things kind of end up being a paraphrase of what Galatians chapter 5 calls the fruit of the Spirit, meaning that when God has done a work in your life, you, you have access to and are embodied with the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, and the outworking of that, the fruit of God working in you, internally, is patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, purity, knowledge, all these different things. And so they're not just like bonus power-ups you get on your journey hoping to kind of make it a little bit. It's actually indwelled in you. That these things aren't going to happen on our own. So when you're, when you're suffering or when you're enduring, you find yourself impatient or you find yourself not gentle or without self-control, Our answer as we disciple one another and and as we try to give ourselves hope is not simply to say, well, be more patient. Just be a little bit kinder. No, we need to be reminded of the fact that we're already empowered to live and endure with kindness. What we're doing instead is just kind of stiff-arming the Holy Spirit and saying, no, I'm going to just try to do this on my own first and see if I can make this work. And instead, he says, we need to be reminded of our new identity in Christ, where we are clothed in righteousness. That's where we we got at the end of chapter 5. Here, he says, with the Holy Spirit, we've been equipped with, actually, weapons of righteousness. So I know I said we didn't pick up the sword. I meant that, that literally. But Paul's very comfortable here using military metaphors because he said, hey, you got something in your right hand, something in your left hand. What he's talking about um, later in Ephesians chapter 6 is like the full armor of God, right? He's talking about, right, the shield of faith to defend you from the arrows that are coming in from suffering. And in the right hand, it talks about the sword of the Spirit, which he says is actually the Word of God. He's like, we actually are equipped defensively and offensively to be able to engage with suffering in the world. God's given us the tools we need. So when we feel like we're just getting the trash kicked out of us because we're being jerks to everybody around us or we're irritable or angry or discouraged or whatever, like maybe we haven't picked up the shield for a while. Maybe we've left the sword on the shelf. And so I'm saying this kind of kind of bluntly, but, but let me make it more of an invitation. If you want the power of God, if you want to experience the presence of God, then I, I hate to make it overly simplistic. You should pray for it. Like God is present and our prayers shape our heart and it's how we connect and commune with him. And you should read your Bibles. Like, this is, we we believe this is the Word of God. It points us to the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. And so it empowers us and equips us to be able to endure the world around us. And so, how are you trying to endure apart from holding your shield and your sword? God's given us what we need. If you're feeling powerless and impatient, let me just encourage you, access the person of God through prayer. Access the word of God through the reading of scripture. 
Because God's power causes us to endure because there's times where we're just going to get even unsettled in who we are. We forget our identity so much because guess what? You see, Paul, at the, the last part of these verses, talks about how quickly we get defined by other people. And how much time are we listening to social media or those around us who are not for us or, or, or critics or, 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 or even the, the critic inside our own heads that starts to define who we are and we stop listening to who God says we are. And so the last way that we endure suffering is that we're encouraged um, in our identity when we start to feel a separation between what God says we are and what the world says we are. See, there are always going to be other people in your life that either do not know you or they know you and, and they're just not for you. And, and, and right or wrong, here's what's, what's wild. Sometimes they might even have the right impression of you. But we can get so easily discouraged because they've decided rightly or wrongly to reject us or oppose us. And, and like I said, they might have good reasons but this is in stark contrast with how we're seen by God because what happens is we allow other people to be the final judges and arbiters of our identities rather than the God who made us. And so we start to confuse then when we hear criticism or critique. Is this an opportunity for me to repent of sin because this is rightly where I'm wrong? You know, I am impatient or, you know, I am not gentle or whatever that looks like. Or rather... Is this a lie from the enemy that needs to be rejected? And I think we need to be careful about that because the reality is it's probably both. Because we are imperfect people. So it's likely both for us. And so Paul, the, the end of this list, just kind of hits on the world's point of view. You can kind of look at verses um, uh, 8 uh, through, through 10, and you kind of break those lists out into two things, and, and there's the world's point of view, and it says you are dishonored. You have no favor. You're slandered against. People have lied about you. You're an imposter. Right? Most of us walk around. I was, you know, in, in, back in the day, you'd use this analogy, like, we all walk around with masks on our face. Well, now we do, um, right? And, and it's like, but, but we all walk around and, and, and waiting for somebody to call us out and realize that we're not who we say we are. That's our insecurity. He says, you're, you're an imposter. You're unknown, which means rejected. You're dying, it says, which means you're hopeless. All of these things push us to believe that there is not a hope for us. This is an accusation from an enemy. And it might be the enemy of Satan spiritually, or it might be those around you. But there's not hope here. Because when the world sees you suffering or sees us suffering, they assume it's tied to your own personal failure. So their answer for you is condemnation. Paul contrasts that with how God sees you. And so let us be encouraged in this. Because in God's point of view, not dishonored, you're honored. That means you're favored. He's like, no, no. And, and, and not slander, but rather praise. Like, like good truths are spoken about you. You can actually have an experience of triumph in your life. And he says, you're not an imposter, you're true. That word means authentic. Yeah, you're not perfect, but you're known. And by the grace of God, you are accepted. You are loved by him. And so you're not unknown, he says, you're known. 
And you're not dead, you're living. That means you actually have hope for the future. You're not um, being punished, you're enduring. That means you're being faithful. And this helps us to remember how much we are affirmed and accepted by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Not on our own merits, but because we've traded ourselves in and have a new identity that's come to us in Christ. So when God sees us suffering, He sees it not as our failure, but as an opportunity for faithfulness. And God's response to us isn't of condemnation, but rather it's of compassion. So we can exhale, so we can be encouraged so that we can live out our lives where we are both sorrowful and yet rejoicing. He says, having nothing yet possessing everything. It means that even if everything external around us seems to not appear as flourishing, because of the identity in us, we have all that we need. Whether in honor or dishonor, we have contentment and conflict and suffering because we have everything we need in Christ and he is more than enough to lead us to rejoice even in the midst of sorrow. Not minimizing sorrow. There are moments and seasons for sorrow. And yet we can continue to praise God even in the midst of those because of his character and what he's done for us. All right, last verses, guys, and then we're done. Verses 11 through 13. So we've we've talked about shame, we've talked about suffering, and now we're going to talk about separation. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians, and he says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children. Widen your hearts also. Conflict, shame, dishonor lead to separation. Sin always separates. And in this case, the gospel answer for the dishonor of separation is forgiveness and reconciliation. And those are two different things. Forgiveness takes courage because one party needs to be able to forgive even if reconciliation is impossible even if it's not reciprocated. And we can do this because God's already forgiven us in Christ so that we can be forgiving people. So we are, put it this way, always called to forgive and be forgiving. We may not always be in a season where reconciliation, being brought back together, is always possible. And this is because That takes mutuality. That takes two parties coming together. Two parties owning what they own. See, our vertical relationship with God, like he reconciles us because he's done all the work. In our horizontal relationships, if there's going to be reconciliation when there's been sin and brokenness, that requires mutuality of both parties ready to forgive, to own, and to work together, to, to, to walk together. And so Paul opens these verses by saying, we've spoken freely to you. Um, There's a phrase that Pete Scazzaro uses. He's a great pastor. He's done emotionally healthy uh, spirituality and leadership and discipleship. Uh, And and, and we've started to adopt it here uh, in our uh, church culture. And that is clarity is kindness. To be clear is to be kind. And so Paul says, hey, this isn't like the like, I'm just telling it like it is. You know, it's, it's back to that truth and love, right? 
Paul's like, I want to be really clear what the situation is that's going on so that there's a real opportunity for real reconciliation. And so Paul's the one who's been wrong, and yet he's come to a place of forgiveness for these people. And so he says, hey, I just want you to know, I want to be really, really clear. Our hearts are wide open. The restriction in us reconciling is with you. That's not Paul blame shifting. That's Paul being clear. He's come with humility. He's come owning his imperfection. And and he's saying, hey, there's a wide open door. You, Corinthians, are the limiting factor in reconciliation. And so he calls them to a fair exchange. He says, in return, widen your hearts. Open your hearts for an opportunity for reconciliation. So we got to think about mutuality because there's obstacles to reconciliation. The one that we get to deal with and the one that we might need to respond to. The first one is that the biggest obstacle to our reconciliation is usually our pride. I don't want to own my part in this. And so that hinders reconciliation when instead we should be seeking humility. I don't want to admit how I've contributed to the conflict. So then you just get stuck. When there's not humility, there's not an opportunity for reconciliation. But the other one, I think, is equally important in terms of how we respond. Because the first one's our pride. The other's our protection. If the other party, the person who's wronged you, person who's abused you, if the person who's harmed you either has not owned what they need to own or has not been changed in a way that leads them to actually be safe, then while, I'll say it again, you are always called, we are always called to forgive, to offer forgiveness, to walk in forgiveness, it may not be the time to reconcile because to do so would be to open ourselves up to harm again. To open up ourselves to abuse again. And so, how, how do we deal with that, though? Because the, here's the problem, right? We want things fixed. When things are broken, we want them fixed. And so, so when, when maybe we've been in a situation where we're like, oh man, I want this fixed. It's been a while. Maybe I'll call them or like their status or kind of do some passive-aggressive thing, like on email maybe, and be like, hey... How you doing? Anything you want to say to me? Right? You know? Like, that's never going to go well. It's not wise. So the answer for us in that is to pray. Pray for them that the Holy Spirit and Jesus would do the work. Jesus is the only one that can fix these things. We cannot fix ourselves, and we certainly can't fix anybody else. But Jesus can, and the Holy Spirit can. So we pray for the people. So you find yourself like, like frustrated or bitter because of either affection, loss, or uh, lost or abuse experience. Pray for that person. Pray for those people. You know, and, and maybe there's going to be times where it's that imprecatory prayer, like, God, I just pray for mashing of teeth and, you know, and rocks and hail, and God's going to be like, no, 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 I got this. Don't worry about that. Or pray for their repentance. Pray for them to receive the grace of God, not in vain. Pray for them to experience God's mercy as you and I and us have experienced God's mercy. 
and then leave the results up to God. Pray for those who've hurt you. And then also pray that your heart would be healed as you struggle with, I hope struggle with bitterness rather than embrace bitterness. It might be time to forgive. It's always time to forgive, but it might not be time to reconcile. So where does this leave us? I don't know how you came in today when it comes to shame or separation or suffering. I don't know how you came in today in regards to sin. So let me speak clearly or speak freely with the hopes that your heart would open wide to who God is and what he's done for you in Jesus Christ. All of us have sinned. We've all experienced shame and suffering and separation in this life. And if it's not dealt with now, that dishonor will lead to an eternal exile. Hell isn't just weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is eternal exile from God who's the source of life and joy and flourishing. It is a destination of dishonor. There's only one answer for sin that can lead to life, endurance, glory, and honor. And that's faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus showed up and he dealt with shame. He had people spitting on him. He, was, he had people scorning him and mocking him. Jesus dealt with suffering on the cross. The word excruciating comes from the suffering that Jesus experienced on the cross in particular. And Jesus dealt with separation. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As all of his friends had turned his back on him and ran away. And he did so comprehensively for us so that we would not experience the dishonor of sin but instead would receive his identity of righteousness and honor so that we could could stand before the creator of the universe knowing that we're known and honored when our identity is not in ourselves, but when we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for who you are.